This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at Serial underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. And if you hear noise going on in the background, for those of you who do know the situation, we have a puppy, Yukon. He's sitting over here playing, so I apologize. This week's podcast will be on Richard Kuklinski. Now, while Richard does technically fit the definition of a serial killer, he does not share the same motivations and impulses that real serial killers often display. So you might hear people say that he wasn't a serial killer, and that's a true statement and also not a true statement, but we're going to put him in our serial killer group. Richard Leonard Kuklinski was born on April 11, 1935 in Jersey City, New Jersey. So let's get into some history for that time. The Great Depression was still raging and unemployment was increasing dramatically. President Roosevelt signed the U.S. Social Security Act, which provided unemployment benefits and pensions for people old enough to be able to retire from working. Alcoholics Anonymous was formed, and that was formed to attempt to help people with alcohol addiction. Amelia Earhart flew solo across the Pacific Ocean. Parker Brothers released the game Monopoly, and the Volkswagen Beetle was created in Germany. The Great Plains, which is like Kansas, Oklahoma, a little bit of Texas, some of Nebraska in the United States, was hit by one of the worst dust storms in U.S. history. This storm would be known as, quote, Black Sunday, as it devastated the region already known as the Dust Bowl. Side note, I've been through the Dust Bowl, and you can still tell where the dry, sandy dirt just mounded up against the wind. It's crazy. Also in Germany, they began to rearm themselves and also passed the Nuremberg Laws to justify them stripping Jews of their civil rights. 
the average cost of a new house was about $3,500 or rent was about $22 a month. The average wage was about $1,600 a year. A new car on average would cost you about $650 and a gallon of gas was just 10 cents a gallon. So Richard's parents were Stanley Kuklinski and Anna McNally. Stanley was born in Warsaw, Poland in December of 1906. His parents had been John and Marianna, both born in the late 1800s. Anna was born in January 1911. Her parents had been Irish immigrants, but she was born in the United States. For whatever reason that I couldn't find, her parents gave her up, and she grew up at Sacred Heart Orphanage. The nuns there were sadistic, literally beating the fear of God, hell, and damnation into this girl. And of course, as we all know, the children were used as slave labor back then too, but slave labor, you know, child labor was not looked at as such a horrible thing back then, but you know, it was. But even with that, Anna had wanted to become a nun when she was grown. Anna was absolutely beautiful. By looking at the photo of her that exists online, she was stunning. Stanley worked as a brakeman for the railroad, and Anna worked in a meat packing factory. Richard was born inside of his parents' low-income public housing apartment in Jersey City. He was the second child, having one older brother, and then he had one younger sister and one younger brother. Richard himself indicated that his father was a horribly abusive alcoholic who would regularly beat his wife and children. He said, quote, I didn't like my father. He would beat me just because he felt like it to get my attention, I guess. He would think nothing of coming in and smacking you. Basically, he'd just come in and give you a whooping for no reason whatsoever. When my father, father, that's a joke, came home and I said hello, he'd say hello by slapping me across the face, unquote. There are stories of how Stanley would take his leather belt, he would wrap it around his work-worn knuckles and punch his sons with it. He often hit his children in the head, knocking Richard's older brother Florian, as well as Richard, unconscious. Now, when speaking about his own mother, Richard said, quote, My mother was cancer. She would destroy everybody. If she thought I took too long to do something, she didn't hesitate to give me a swat here and there, and she didn't just use her hands. She'd hit me with a broomstick or something like that. It hurt. As a matter of fact, she broke the broom on me more than once. Unquote. Anna was devoutly Roman Catholic and she thoroughly believed in the saying, spare the rod and spoil the child. So Stanley beat eight-year-old Florian so severely that he killed him. He hit him so hard in the back of the head that the boy fell to the floor and died instantly. Richard was five years old and he witnessed his father murder his brother. 
His parents hid the cause of the child's death from the authorities, saying that he had fallen down a flight of stairs. Those sources say Anna was devastated. And though anybody that knew that family knew that that was a complete lie, no one outwardly questioned it, and Florian was put in a casket and laid out in the family's living room. Richard was forced to look at the dead body of his brother, who had also been his best friend, knowing what had actually happened to him and was mentally just waiting for his turn to be laid out in their living room. After this, his father did lay off of him for a short while, but the beatings soon returned and with a vengeance. He began beating Richard so severely that the bruises were enough to keep him home from school. Anna had put him in Catholic school where, again, he was beaten for minor infractions. His mother's way of coping with the violence in her home was to face a wall and pray fervently during the beatings. She attended mass, begging for God's help. And then suddenly, boom, Stanley was gone. Sources say he started an affair and abandoned his family completely. Simultaneously, Richard was so poor, thin, and terribly shy, he was bullied relentlessly by the other kids in the neighborhood. At just 10 years old, his inner rage was so intense that he began to try to relieve it by abusing and killing stray animals, mostly cats. He would tie the cats' tails together, throw them over a clothesline, and then watch them kill each other. He said other times he would just throw them into basement incinerators and watch them burn. And this story of how he deals with his rage with animals kind of reminds me of another serial killer that I've covered, Wayne Nance. Now, once Richard graduated elementary school, he got to spend a few weeks during the summer with his mother's brother, Uncle Mickey. In the book titled, quote, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, Richard described those few weeks as a dream-like experience that he would savor his entire life. He said, quote, My Uncle Mickey was the only adult that was ever good to me. He was a real nice guy, and I'll never forget him, unquote. His uncle's house was clean, and Richard even commented on the food that Mickey and his wife served him as first class. It was this glimpse into a better life that Richard decided that's what he wanted. At 14 years old, with his father gone and the neighborhood boys beating him relentlessly for years, Richard had finally had enough. And who would blame him? After one kid in particular put his hands on Richard, he went home, he took a steel rod out of his closet and beat the youth literally to death. He then removed the boy's teeth and fingertips in an attempt to make him unidentifiable, then threw him over a bridge. There are a few sources that say that this is kind of BS, but the majority of the sources say that he did this. Richard said that this action made him feel empowered. 
He said, quote, I found out that if you hurt somebody, they leave you alone. That's when I found out it was better to give than to receive, unquote. And by the way, a lot of interviews with him are on YouTube. I suggest you go listen because his kind of New Jersey, New York accent is kind of buttery. If you're into that kind of thing, it's pretty cool to listen to. It was after that, that it had become obvious to everyone that he was not to be messed with. He had a short, explosive temper and the smallest things could trigger it. He dropped out of school during his 8th grade year and began hanging out in pool halls, and it didn't take very long for him to learn how to hustle people out of money being a pool shark. But again, if someone did something as slight as get on his nerves, he would beat them within an inch of their lives. So, that was Richard's childhood. It's pretty obvious what went wrong, but let's get into it. Richard was born into poverty. Having been actually born inside the apartment his parents lived in that was part of the government income-based housing, he himself stated that they were on food stamps and welfare. While his parents both did work, there are still long-term effects on children born into that kind of poverty. For starters, persistently poor children are 13% less likely to complete high school and 43% less to complete college. Also, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, there is a sharp increase in child maltreatment in families who live in poverty. And the data shows that the worse the poverty, the worse the abuse. Over 50% of families referred to Child Protective Services are receiving welfare at the time of the referral. The U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health, states that a child's behavior is an outward manifestation of inner stability and security. We know this. It is the, quote, lens through which the family physician can observe the development of the child throughout his or her life. Any abuse experienced by a child is damaging, of course, be it physical, sexual, emotional, or psychological, and it can and often does cause long-term difficulties with behavior and mental health development. It causes disordered psychological development and behavioral problems. A strong and secure attachment bond with a primary caregiver is the core of developing resilience and a healthy personality. It strengthens a child's ability to cope with stress, regulate emotions, provide social support, and forming nurturing relationships. So, some symptoms of attachment disorder are control issues, anger problems, difficulty showing genuine care and affection, and an underdeveloped conscience. And we see some of that in Richard for sure. Young people are highly sensitive to other people's emotions, particularly those of their family members. Witnessing scenes of verbal or physical violence and discord, especially between their parents, has a direct negative effect with long-lasting consequences. 
children who experience parental abuse or neglect are more likely to show negative outcomes that carry forward into adult life, such as issues with emotional regulation, self-concept, social skills, academic motivation, serious learning and adjustment problems, severe depression, aggressive behavior, peer difficulties, substance abuse, and delinquency. And then we have children who witness murder. These children are obviously emotionally traumatized, stigmatized, and are deeply scarred by that event. They often exhibit symptoms comparable to PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Other signs are sleep difficulties, somatic complaints such as headaches or other pains with no medical cause, increased aggressive behavior, angry outbursts, hypervigilance, regression, withdrawal, numbing such as showing no feelings at all or not bothered by anything, which Richard says he felt the rest of his life and so on. And this is children that witness murder. Imagine how intense this would be or how much more amplified, let's say, if you witness the murder of your sibling by one of your parents. There is no doubt that watching his father literally beat his brother and kill him changed Richard forever. He also watched as his father and mother covered up the crime and got away with it. The abuse Richard, along with his siblings, endured throughout his childhood was intense, unrelenting, and inhumane. Severely abusing a child because you are unhappy with how your life is playing out is unforgivable. There is no redemption, in my most humble opinion, because I would know. So Richard was beaten severely at home then sent to a Catholic school where he was beat. He witnessed his father kill his helpless older brother. Why would his later life be of any surprise to anyone? But let's get back into it. At the age of 18, Richard got into a fight with another young man in a bar. Richard beat him with a pool stick until the young man died. He later said in an interview that this murder actually made him upset with himself and that he hadn't actually meant to kill the man, but at the same time, it gave him a rush and a sense of control. Richard did get married to a woman named Linda that was nine years older than him, and the pair had two sons together. He got work at a trucking company, and life was okay. Then in 1960, 25-year-old Richard met 19-year-old Barbara Pedrin. Barbara was interviewed and she said he was a hopeless romantic. He sent her flowers constantly and bought her gifts and she stated he was very happy when they were together. Richard and Linda divorced and then he married Barbara in 1961. It didn't take long for their first daughter to be born. However, due to his eighth grade education, he couldn't get a job making the kind of money he needed to to provide the life he wanted for his rapidly growing family. 
So he got a job at a film lab where he began to quietly pirate pornography films for a local mob family. As he worked with the Gambino family, yes, the Gambino family, he got involved in more of their criminal activities and quickly became a highly sought-after hitman. His ability to become an efficient killing machine was recognized. He worked with a group of guys that worked out of Brooklyn's Gemini Lounge, which is interestingly now a church of God. Richard became favored among hitmen for the mob due to his level of brutality and torture. He later described causing his victims to bleed, then tying them up in rat-infested areas so that the rats would be attracted to the smell of blood and would eventually eat those men alive. Richard himself was an impressive and very intimidating six foot four inch tall or 1.93 meters and 300 pounds or 21.43 stone sized man. Okay. And though it might surprise you, he did not drink. He did not do drugs. He was completely faithful to Barbara completely. His neighbors thought he was a very respectable businessman. His wife, Barbara, suspected he must have been involved in some crime due to the incredible amount of money that he would bring home. She also said that it was like being married to two different men. One was a loving and kind family man who spared no expense for his wife and children taking them on vacations to Disney World and buying a family the new car every six months. The other was an unpredictable man on an unpredictable schedule and would fly into fits of rage and physically abuse his wife as well as verbally abuse his children. But I never found anything that stated that he put his hands on his kids. In 1970, Richard's little brother, Joseph, was convicted and sent to prison for raping a 12-year-old little girl, then throwing her off the top of a five-story building where she died from the injuries. Later, Richard was asked what he thought about his brother's crime, and his response was, quote, We come from the same father, unquote. So when Richard was killing his victims, his methods varied. He used knives, guns, explosives, fire, asphyxiation, and others. But his chosen method of murder was using cyanide. That was his favorite. It kills faster than arsenic or strychnine. Cyanide is used in gas chambers because it works so quickly, and it's hard to detect. Richard also used different methods for disposing of bodies. Sometimes he would put bodies in these big drums or he would put them in the trunk of a car and then take that car to a salvage yard and have the car crushed. He was particularly known for using a chainsaw and dismembering already dead bodies and putting the pieces in large plastic sheeting or bags and then walk them right out of the club. He even left some bodies propped up on park benches. 
He then got the idea and he began freezing the dead bodies of his victims for long periods of time before dumping the body. Once disposed of, the body would begin to thaw, throwing the authorities off of the time of death. This practice is how Richard later became known as the, quote, Iceman. Richard once fed one of his associates a cyanide-laced hamburger, then shoved the body, after the guy died, between the mattress and box spring in a motel room and left it there. Others rented the room for four days, completely unaware before the body was finally found. Now, these methods made it exceedingly difficult for investigators to pinpoint that they were all done by the same killer. Richard stated that the actual death was not what he craved. It was the hunt. Knowing that his victims never knew exactly when he would strike and their fear of that inevitability was what he loved. For more than 30 years, Richard Kuklinski worked as a contract killer and was known for his brutal slayings for the mob. But as his closer associates began to disappear and were found dead, he landed himself on the police's radar. He was eventually linked to five unsolved homicides because he had been the last person to see those people alive. So, in 1985, the now 50-year-old Kuklinski had enough suspicion surrounding him that a division of the New Jersey Criminal Justice Department created a task force that consisted of local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies. They also teamed up with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and together, they went to work on building a case against Richard so that they could arrest and convict him. Somehow, they were able to get a close, longtime friend of Richard's to work with them, and that man introduced an undercover officer to Richard as an, quote, associate. The officer eventually told Richard that he wanted to hire him to kill this rich Jewish man during a cocaine deal robbery. That officer obviously wore a wire and the conversation with Richard was recorded where he spoke in great detail exactly what he would do to that man. Richard had planned for this one on using cyanide for the murder, which he was going to get from the undercover officer. So once the officer gave the cyanide to Richard, he apparently went on a walk by himself and tested it on a stray dog and saw that it did not kill the dog. So Richard backed out of the planned murder, but was stopped at a roadblock later and arrested. His wife had been with him in the car and she was charged with possession of an illegal firearm. He was ultimately charged with five counts of murder and six weapons violations, along with attempted murder, robbery, and attempted robbery. He apparently had a lot of money stashed in a Swiss bank account, along with his passports and plans to fly there. During his trial, former associates testified against him, 
and along with the recorded conversations, well, his fate was sealed. He avoided the death penalty by pleading guilty to two murders and was sentenced to 120 years in prison. He served his time in Trenton State Prison in New Jersey. Now, luckily, it's not super common. Richard did open himself up to be seen by psychiatrists and other professionals because he was curious about why he was able to do what he could do. One of the doctors that interviewed him stated, for Richard, it really was nature and nurture combined. The doctor stated that Richard had antisocial personality disorder and that, most likely, his father had had the disorder as well. He also said that Richard had paranoid personality disorder. So let's unpack those. Antisocial personality disorder displays itself as a blatant disregard for right and wrong, persistent lying or deceit to exploit others, being callous, cynical, and disrespectful to others, using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain or personal pleasure, arrogance, a sense of superiority, being extremely opinionated, problems with the law, violating the rights of others, and so on. Paranoid personality disorder displays as doubting the loyalty of others, believing that others have hidden motives or are out to harm them, being hypersensitive to criticism, having trouble working with others, being quick to become angry and hostile, becoming detached or socially isolated, etc. Now, some experts think that Richard was, well, full of it, that he exaggerated or fabricated some of the stories that he gave and part of his confessions. There have been books written about mob families, including the Gambino family, and Richard wasn't really mentioned in the books. But the consensus is that he was, in fact, a very dangerous man with no qualms about killing. And it seems reasonable to assume that he was working for the mob considering the serious amount of money that he was bringing home and spending on his family. In a 1991 interview, Kuklinski recalled one of the few murders he later regretted committing. He said, quote, It was a man and he was begging and pleading and praying, I guess. And he said, Please God and all over the place. So I told him he could have a half hour to pray to God, and if God could come down and change the circumstances, he'd have that time. But God never showed up, and he never changed the circumstances, and that was that. It wasn't too nice. That one thing, I shouldn't have done that one. I shouldn't have done it that way. Unquote. So in October 2005, Richard was diagnosed with a disease that causes inflammation of the blood vessels. He told the doctors that he definitely wanted to be resuscitated were he to go into cardiac arrest, but his wife signed a do not resuscitate order. Richard died at the age of 70 in March 2006. An autopsy was ordered and it was confirmed that he did die from a heart attack and had been suffering from heart disease. I mean, he was pretty overweight there towards the end. 
So I don't think it's going to be any surprise when you hear me say that the doctor was right. In Richard's case, it was nature and nurture. It is obvious the father was a very violent man, and I agree with the doctor's assessment of him. His mother, I think, probably meant well, but she was a product of what she was raised in. You know, she had been raised in a mean and violent atmosphere, taught that basically beating a child like a horse was how you trained a child to be good and godly. The fact that Richard witnessed his father beat his older brother until he killed him, and then both parents cover it up, showed him just how invaluable life really was. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram, at serial underscore killing, or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. I have a Patreon. It takes a lot of time to put these together, but I love it. And thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate every one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thanks and have a great day.